The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tonight, so if you turn there, and in our study of living in wisdom, I, I want to return to the discussion about the Lord's Supper. And we're on this subject because we're discussing the first T in the Baptist acrostic, which stands for our belief that the church has two and only two ordinances. And we make this a point that there are only two of these in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church's teaching that there are more than two and that they are sacraments, not ordinances. And uh, there are, in fact, seven, not just two. And so in the past messages, I, I've shown you how that we differ uh, on the number of ordinances and on the meaning and the purpose of them. Catholicism says that there is saving efficacy in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. But we believe that there is no grace that is conferred in the ritual, especially grace that relates to uh, the gift of salvation. Now, we've covered that part of the discussion extensively, so I'm not going to go into it again. But I only want to remind you uh, of this, that the doctrine is that we have two ordinances in the church. That's what the T in the Baptist, first T in the Baptist stands for. And uh, that's in order, again, to emphasize the difference between us uh, and the heretical teachings of Roman Catholicism. Now, it, it turns out, I mean, this is the thing through many, many centuries of church history that the Roman Catholic Church has been the tool that Satan has used as the worst corrupting influence on Christian doctrine that there is. And so as Baptists, uh, many of our intense efforts, and maybe I should say even the most intense of our efforts in the doctrinal sense are to combat what Roman Catholicism has to say. And uh, and so that that's that's what we, when, when we're looking at the Baptist acrostic, I, I may mention Catholicism often because we find ourselves at a different place in just about every point. Well, in tonight's message, I, I'd like to finish our discussion of the supper. Uh, we will briefly review the first two parts of the message and then we'll add two more to finish up the subject and then we'll be ready to move on to the next letter in the acrostic. Now first in our outline is the place of the Lord's Supper. And the place uh, is not the coordinates on a map. The place is wherever the church is assembled. Uh, this is a church ordinance and it is to be observed where a particular body of Christians has been coveted together in order to carry out the Lord's work in that particular locality. These are people that are bonded together in a special relationship, in a church relationship, and um, they're meeting for this specific purpose of being the Lord's body in that place. Now, to simplify that statement, is what I'm saying is that the supper cannot be observed by Christians who are not meeting in church capacity and in fellowship with one another. So there isn't any right to a private observance of the supper. Now, if you take a tour of Israel like we did a few years ago, one of the most moving experiences for many people is to observe the Lord's Supper with a tour group when you visit the Garden Tomb. Now, that wasn't my most memorable experience. Uh, I had mine on the Sea of Galilee. But for many people, it's going to the Garden Tomb, and there the tour groups will go into different uh, areas there and observe the Lord's Supper together. 
Well, I was approached, since I am a pastor, I, I was approached by the uh, leader of our group and asked me if I would like to speak at their observance of the supper and to help to serve the elements. Well, I politely declined that invitation, and I had no intentions of, of taking the supper in that type of setting because the supper is not something that we do at our whim, and certainly it's not something to be taken with a tour group of strangers. It's a church ordinance, not a tour group ordinance. So that's the, that's the place of the supper. It has to be where, where the church is assembled. Now, secondly, we discussed the participants in the Lord's Supper, and that part of it might seem a little bit redundant since the place is with the church assembled. But there is a distinction here between the place and the participants, and the distinction is a finer one. Those who participate in the supper must be baptized believers who are covenanted together in a church relationship. And since we believe that the church is a local, organized body of believers, it should be observed only by those that are members of that particular church. Now, in our church meetings, we will often have non-members that are present. We don't invite non-members to the supper. Non-members are prohibited and that's not necessarily because they lack any type of moral qualifications to be able to take the supper. But we limit that or restrict it because the, the church is a self-contained body. Um, the church is this particular body. This is a body of Christ, as I said a moment ago, in this locality. And any person who comes into the church, whether visiting a church service or whatever, he is, and don't take this wrongly, but, but that person is an appendage. He's not a part of this body. So we observe the supper only with those that are subject to the authority of this body. Outsiders are not subject to our authority. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so therefore we practice what is called closed communion, which means that we close it to any outsiders. It's only for the members of this body. So we don't make any judgments on anybody else. That's not a judgment of a person's salvation. There are many good Christians that visit us and members of other churches. We love to have them come. But we do this because we think, we do believe that that's what the Bible teaches concerning the uh, participants of the supper. And what we're doing then is following what we believe to be the scriptural mandate. So if you weren't here uh, to hear that part of this about the particular viewpoints on who should be admitted... And there are various opinions about it. I strongly suggest that what you would get is a copy of uh, the sermon I preached on that. And then uh, if you didn't do that, then download it from the website. So now we're going to move on to other parts of the discussion. And we want to look thirdly tonight at the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to preface this part by saying it is important for us to be particular about the observance. Now, for some reason, there are people that are very, very particular about baptism. At least, at least some are. Uh, they should be. Uh, but those same people that are very particular about the way that we would do baptism and who can be baptized turn out to be very loosey-goosey on this other ordinance of the supper. Now, we absolutely do insist that baptism should be by immersion. There is no other scriptural way that you can do it. We insist that it must be by the right authority. That is, only the Lord church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to baptize anyone. We're very careful about guarding the New Testament practice, and well, we should, because baptism is a very critical doctrine. 
But this other ordinance of the supper is different in many people's minds because many people act as if there isn't any need to be particular about it. It's okay to generalize it. It, it, It's okay to be indefinite about it. Uh, You can tolerate all kinds of differences of opinion about it. That's not really important because, in fact, in most churches, the Lord's Supper is nothing but a ritual that gets tacked on to the end of the service and then you go through it. That's one of the reasons why I like our new schedule. I like doing it on the quarter because it's not so common. Uh, we have time to step back and think about it and focus about it and, and really to uh, understand why that we would do the supper and why the Lord has commanded us to do it. There are so many profound truths that are found in the Lord's Supper that I think it's well worth our time to, to consider it very, very carefully and learn what the, the meaning of it is. Now, I mentioned in the last time that we talked about this, the uh, a church down in Petaluma that just put stuff out on a table, they invite people to come around and take whatever they want off of that table, and they call that taking the Lord's Supper. Now that kind of practice prompts us to, to want to take a closer look at this to see what, what's going on in the Supper. What is it that the Lord is trying to tell us? What things are taught? And we do need to take our time to emphasize the great truths that are found here. Now you can see in the text verses of First Corinthians chapter 11, that taken together, this part about the Lord's Supper, taken together in the whole context of the chapter, that we can see that Paul is very concerned about Lord's Supper abuses. There is a wrong way and a right way to do this. Now, he rebukes the Petaluma-type church for their practices in verses 20 through 22, where he says to these Corinthians, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now here's the problem with the Corinthian church, that they were very, very casual about the Lord's Supper. They were wrong about it. What they had done was to make the supper a common meal, a very trite affair. Uh, Apparently, anybody was able to come. Uh, They were eating and drinking, and they were having a big food fellowship, you might say. And Paul said, that is not to take the Lord's Supper. This is one of the reasons why uh, I don't like to have food fellowships on the same night that we have the Lord's Supper. I don't want to mix that up. I don't want to confuse people about this. We're not going to observe the supper and then have dessert. There won't be cake and ice cream after the Lord's Supper. I don't want anything to mix in with it that would detract from the solemnity of what we do in the Lord's Supper. Now, the supper has very, very significant special truths that are attached to it. Now, looking, looking at the text, and I'm not going to read it in its entirety because you're familiar with it, but notice for now, just verse number 26... For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And and in that verse, we find the purpose of the supper. We observe the supper as a memorial of the Lord's death. There are two elements that are involved to, to give us that picture of important aspects of his death. And we believe that we must be particular about those. Um, we must be strict about it. The first is the bread. The next is the fruit of the vine. Verses 23 through 25 describe these. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now the bread and the cup are very specific. These are types. And you should be familiar with the the doctrine of types, the concept of Bible types. Remember back a few weeks ago on Father's Day, I preached from Genesis chapter 22 about Abraham, and we looked at that chapter, and it was filled with many, many types, types that find their antitypes in New Testament doctrine. Well, in the supper, we have these types, these important, unchanging propositional truths that are taught by the elements that we take. Now, it's necessary that those elements should be exactly right. We don't have the authority to change them. We don't have the authority to use anything else because when we do, we destroy the antitype. We destroy the very thing that these types, the, what the, the bread and the blood are meant to emphasize. And this is why God is very, very specific about these things. We look into the Old Testament and we find there that God was very specific about tabernacle worship. Everything that Israel did was very, very specific. There were truths that God wanted to emphasize. And if they uh, did the wrong thing, then it would destroy the type or the picture that Jesus, or rather that God, was trying to show. And we saw how critical that was uh, when we talked about how that uh, children of Israel were in the wilderness. Israel needed water, and Moses struck the rock a second time. The New Testament says that that rock is Christ. He was stricken only one time. And, and his death was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So when Moses struck the rock twice, the type was ruined. The type that says that Christ is a one-time sacrifice, he's stricken death only once, he appears for death only one time, and then the second time that he appears, the Bible says he will appear without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ was also, or Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, if you look at that, and, and you would have to, uh, I'm sure that you would agree with me that that is very substantial propositional truth. And we can't imagine that we would do this, that we would, that would ruin that type of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very purpose for which he became God incarnate to come into this world to save the world from its sins. He came in order to die, but not just to die, to rise from the grave and then to conquer death once for all so that we never die again. And when Moses struck that rock a second time, he ruined that type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he would suffer for sin only one time, and he has actually overcome death, conquered it forever. And we also find that Moses striking the rock a second time was devastating not just to the type, but also to his own prospects of entering the promised land. That tells you how serious this was. Now, in tabernacle worship, Israel was very careful about watching what they were doing. When they chose their animals for sacrifice... They would not take the weak and sickly. Economically, that's the thing that makes most sense, isn't it? Those are the animals that are going to die anyway. So why not take those animals for sacrifice? They couldn't. And that's because spiritually, it's all wrong. The lamb represents the perfect, sinless lamb of God. 
And so that lamb that's chosen has to be unblemished in order to represent Christ. So Israel wouldn't dare to take the sickly because the truth that's represented by that type would be ruined. Now, in the same way, the elements of the Lord's Supper and the way that we take them represents the, the meticulous care of carefully inspecting an animal for sacrifice. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Some people would be very happy because it would be so easy if we had crackers and Kool-Aid in the Lord's Supper. I mean, now that's much simpler. I mean, what, what difference does it make if we match the types that we find in the New Testament? We're far removed from the New Testament, aren't we? Why would God be so concerned about that? I mean, isn't it the thought that counts? I mean, isn't what we just have in our minds about it, what we think that it represents? Is God so concerned about the letter of the law? Doesn't he care more about the intent than he does the details? And that's actually an often used excuse when you talk about this, but we have to be very, very careful when we talk about intent. Many people think that God saves people because their intentions are good. Maybe they don't cross their T's right. Maybe they don't dot drop, drop the I's exactly right. But it, after all, it is sincerity that saves, isn't it? If you're just sincere about what you believe, isn't that going to save you? Well, I wouldn't take a chance on that. Not when eternity hangs in the balance. Now, as Baptists, we, we believe that we have to guard our doctrine. No, it's not just the intent. I mean, it, it has to be exactly right according to the Scriptures. When it comes to justification, we're not going to fudge a little bit on justification because people might have what they think is the right intent. Now, we're very specific about that because the doctrine of justification is something that separates us from all other religions, separates us from what all other denominational people think about how you can be saved. So we're not going to fudge on that and say, oh, it's just the intent. And so if you want to be saved, the fact that you want to be saved, do it the way that you want to. No, we can't do it. So how particular are we about these things? Well, every time that we take the supper, we, we do it in exactly the order that is prescribed by the Apostle Paul in the text. I discussed that in the last message. But now I want to talk to you about these elements. Why are we so particular about them? What are they? What do these represent? Well, the text defines the type for us. And our first type that we see is that bread represents the Lord's body. Now, I know this is not new information. You know this. The bread represents the Lord's body. Verse number 24. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, we have no mistake about what our type is here. The type is the bread. The antitype is the Lord's body. And we don't have any doubt that bread should be used. That part is obvious to us. But is there anything special about the bread that is to be used? Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. This is Matthew's account of the supper. And when Jesus was in the last week of his life, it was time for him to give his disciples a picture of his death. Matthew 26 and verse number 17. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. 
Now we notice here that the time of the Passover was at the same time as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By the time that Jesus came, uh, the feast had, this particular feast had become synonymous with Passover. They did occur at the same time of the year. Passover came within the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so, by the time of Jesus, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were identified as being the same. When you spoke of one, you spoke of the other. Now, the reason for that feast takes us back to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. The first Passover, as you know, was observed on the night that uh, Israel departed from Egypt, and they were told to prepare a meal of unleavened bread to eat with the Passover lamb. And the reason that the bread was unleavened was because they were in a hurry. They didn't have time for the bread dough to rise, and so they didn't put any yeast in it and wait for that to happen. So they ate it as unleavened bread. Now, the symbolism of that got incorporated into the law that was given on Sinai. And at that time, God said, this is going to be a perpetual feast that you are to observe throughout all of your years. And so every year, the Israelites would have this feast of unleavened bread to celebrate the time of the exodus from Egypt. Now, originally, the purpose of the unleavened bread was because of that that hurry-up mode that Israel was in. And it was only later that sin became equated with leaven. Now, that comes later. We don't get that in the picture of the Exodus. So sin uh, was not in view in the Exodus. The picture of leaven representing sin came in at a later time. And so when Jesus instituted the supper, the intent was not to have anything to do with the Exodus from Egypt. That's not what he was doing with the institution, but rather... By, by this time, and you know, later on, we find in the Old Testament that leaven became a representative of sin. A representative of sin. And so this is what Jesus was looking at when he says unleavened bread, or they take unleavened bread, is because that is a picture of sin. For example, Jesus told the disciples, you need to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. And they understood that to mean, you are to stay away from the sins of the Pharisees. Avoid that. Now, if you look at verse number 17... You can see that the disciples asked Jesus, what place do you want us to prepare in order to eat the Passover? Now there we have a question that is pregnant with meaning. Because it's not just the fact that they're going to observe the supper, and they will have bread, and they will have unleavened bread, and they will have a Passover lamb. It's not just that preparation, but they have something bigger in their minds. And that is, how are we going to prepare the room where this feast is going to take place. And what they would do is they would very meticulously scrub down the entire room. They wanted to make sure that there were no traces of any leaven that was left, nothing anywhere in the house. All the pots and the pans, all the utensils are very carefully cleaned to be sure that there is no yeast that's left over from prior times that they had fixed meals. So the room is completely scrubbed down. And this is because leaven is a type of sin in God's economy. Now, this was actually, doing that entire procedure is not something that you find in the laws of God, but that's something that the Pharisees had instituted, and uh, it's part of their ideas of self-righteousness. But this is what the disciples have in their mind when Jesus says, go prepare a place for us to eat. They're thinking, we've got to get over there, we've got to get the room scrubbed down, take all the time that it takes to do that. And in their minds, and what Jesus was going to try to present a picture to them of is... That leaven represents sin. And Jesus Christ was without sin. No sin in him. Nada. Now the reason that he had no sin, that's the 
subject of countless other sermons that we don't have time to get in tonight. But suffice it to say, here is a type that must be preserved. Now, in Paul's instructions to the Corinthians, he, he was intensely interested with the problem of sin. And this is why there's this very important discussion of church discipline that takes place in chapter 5. Now, if you'll turn to chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians for just a moment, we're going to look at these verses and see the connection. Paul is interested in sin. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now if you go back to our text in chapter 11, and in verse number 26, he says here, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now here we see that sin is still a problem for the Lord's Supper. We can't change the typology. We can't change it because then we lose the truth that's represented. Now, it might sound like a good idea that you go to Safeway and get a loaf of Wonder Bread. I mean, after all, with a name like that, that has to be the best bread that you could use in the Lord's Supper. So go get a loaf of Wonder Bread, and then we'll use that when we come. It would be so much simpler, wouldn't it? Julie wouldn't have to go to the trouble of making the bread. She wouldn't have to fight off Lino, who's always trying to put sugar and cinnamon on top of it. She, I mean, she does that with a lot of care. Uh, because, you know, that's going to represent the body of the Lord Jesus Christ when we take the supper. Well, the command is very specific. Back in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I very well understand that Paul is speaking there metaphorically. He's speaking of the spiritual. But I'm also very sure about this, that Paul was a stickler for the type. And what he would do is run us down just like he did the Corinthian church if we were to ruin the type of the sinless body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must be sure to preserve the type. That's why we use unleavened bread. Now, I want you to watch this closely because this also has bearing on the second element of the supper. The next is the cup. Verse number 25 of 1 Corinthians 11. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, The cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now here we find the type is the cup. The antitype is the Lord's blood. So the cup represents the Lord's blood. Well, when we say cup, and as we read it here in 1 Corinthians, it means the contents of the cup. Jesus talked about the cup in his prayer in Gethsemane. And there the cup represented the bitter dregs of death that Jesus would swallow. So the cup represents his death because of sin. And here in the supper, we have the sense that the blood of Christ stands for his death. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There the scripture gives us the importance of Christ's blood, that his blood paid the ransom price for our sins. Now we have to be careful that we understand this correctly because we're not to draw from this a a belief in what is known as the divine blood theory. That is that divine blood means that Christ's blood was the blood of God. It was divine, that it was different from human blood. Well, that's wrong. Christ was fully human. The blood in his body was human blood. And if you got a drop of Jesus' blood on you, there wasn't anything supernatural that would happen. Uh, I'm sure that as a child, Jesus often scraped his knees. As an apprentice carpenter, um, he probably cut his hands and would bleed. And the blood that fell from his hands or from his knees did not cause daisies to grow. Tulips maybe, but not daisies. Uh, When his mom cleaned up those scrapes, her day wasn't brighter because she touched his blood. No, it's human blood. So we understand that when the scriptures speak of his blood and that we are redeemed by his blood, it's talking about his death. Shedding of blood means that there is death because there's life in the blood. So when the blood is shed, out goes the life. And so the blood stands for Christ's death. So when I pour the cups in the supper, it's to show that Christ died. It's his death that saves us from sin. It's not divine blood. It's not human blood that saves anybody. It's the death of Jesus Christ that saves us. And so uh, the death of the Son certainly does that, not, not the physical elements. His death is of infinite value because it took away the sins of all people that believe in him. Well, that brings us to the substance in the cup. Is that important? Do we need to be particular about it? Well, this part is actually much more controversial than the bread. We we don't often have trouble dealing with people that, about the unleavened bread. Some some churches, that doesn't make any difference to them. I've, I've seen saltine crackers and all other types of things that are used, but mostly among Baptists and, and, um, uh, of our, and people of our type, Baptistic churches, uh, don't have a problem with this. We're going to use unleavened bread. But the cup, what's in the cup, that, is a different matter. There, there's argument about it. So what is in that cup? What did Jesus give the disciples to drink? Was it unfermented grape juice or was it wine? Some people will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to find the answer to that question and they'll see that Paul reprimanded the Corinthian church for getting drunk at the supper. And that sounds just like what it is. They got drunk. They were using alcoholic wine in the supper. Now, that's bizarre, isn't it? That's bizarre. You know, I've heard of times when, you know, a tipsy Catholic priest gets into the sacramental wine a little bit early. We hear things like that. And uh, as Baptists, that, that's appalling to us. We couldn't believe that somebody would do that. But I hardly think that what the Corinthians did would be convincing proof of why we should use wine in the Lord's Supper. Oh, that They were wrong every which way from Sunday. And what they did, and and so why should we count their drinking wine as a proof that that's what we ought to do? Many of them had already gone over to their old lifestyles that they lived in before, the drunkenness and the sex perversion and things like that. We see that in the Corinthian church. It's a constant problem that Paul was dealing with, especially in chapters 5 and 6. Now let me point out that despite the arguments made about the use of wine in the New Testament, 
that the Bible never uses wine in connection with the supper. In the three gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is what we find. Let me read from Matthew. This is representative of all of them. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so the only reference that we have to the content that's in the cup is the fruit of the vine. Never do we find the common word that's used for wine in connection with the Lord's Supper. I believe that's done on purpose. Jesus very well could have said wine when he talked in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, he could have, Paul, the Apostle Paul could have said wine instead of the cup, but he didn't. Now let me point out that there are desperate arguments that are made about the use of wine in the New Testament. I have sermons on that. We're not going to go there. I don't need to. Instead, we're going to take a look at other convincing proofs that what Jesus used in the Lord's Supper could not have been fermented wine. So this is, this is a big, big point. The typology. What about this typology that we're talking about? Can fermented wine picture the blood of Christ? Now, before I answer that question, I'm also, you know, Lino and, and, and Julie take care of the Lord's Supper, so I get to talk about them here. But I reminded the time that Lino brought some white grape juice for us to use in the Lord's Supper. And I looked at that and I said, what? Uh, I don't have a scripture and a verse for this, a chapter and a verse, but I think that maybe at least it ought to look a little bit like blood to be representative. Uh, well, the question is, what, what about that? I mean, it, could you use fermented wine in the Lord's Supper, whether it's white, red, green, or whatever it is? Could you use fermented wine? Can that represent the blood of Christ? Well, even the argument that some people use going back into the Old Testament, and they say, well, well, the priest used strong drink. But did you know this priest didn't drink the strong drink? You know what he did with it? He poured it out on the ground, which is the best use that I could find for it. He poured it out on the ground. Now, another thing that we could do, we could argue about the alcohol content of Bible wines. Uh, that, that's a great subject, but we don't need to go there either. Can fermented wine picture the blood of Christ? That's the question. And the question is actually its own answer. The wine is fermented. And what is fermentation? You ready for this? Fermented wine is leavened. Fermentation is a leavening process. It's, yeast has done its work on the juice, and the juice is leavened. You can't have unleavened wine. That's an impossibility. So fermentation is a leavening process. It leaves the wine with the effects of that leavening process. Now, I know the argument goes that, well, uh, in the fermentation process, that the yeast is used up. The yeast is the catalyst. The, the catalyst kicks off the uh, chemical change in, in the element. And, and so um, that's all used up. So you don't actually have the yeast. You don't have that in, in the fermented wine when you're done. Well, the only question that we need to ask is, what about a piece of light bread? When you make a piece of bread, you put yeast in it. When it rises, is the yeast still there? No, oh, the yeast has done its job. It's the catalyst in the same way, and the yeast is gone. And then that bread is leavened, isn't it? Now, let's think about this for just a minute. How, how could that fit the type? How could fermented wine figure in here to match the sinless blood of Christ? What is the fermentation process? Well, actually, fermentation is corruption. The, the grape of the juice is corrupted. Once it's sweet and it's pure, but fermentation corrupts the juice and changes it from what it was. 
So the leaven or the yeast begins that fermentation process, and the yeast is not present in the grape. It's on the skin of the grape. And when the, when the grape is broken, when it's trampled and so forth, the yeast gets into the batch and it gets crushed, it gets mixed in. The grape gets crushed, the yeast gets mixed into it, and it begins to corrupt the juice and change it into alcoholic wine. Now, um, do any of you need to be told how much trouble alcohol has caused in our society? Do we have to have an argument about that? I tell you, if we do, I'm going to win. I'll win that argument. Now, you take a minute to compare that to Christ. Was he leavened? Was he corrupted? Was his flesh and blood corrupted? Well, the Bible teaches us that even when Jesus was put into a grave for three days and three nights, his body did not see corruption. Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's in the Old Testament, but those are the words of Christ. Now that's a great promise that stuck with him. The Father was going to raise him. His body would not see corruption. And we have to ask the question, could rotten juice represent the blood of Jesus Christ? Does fermented wine maintain the type? Or is that like Moses striking the, rice a sec, uh, the rock a second time? Is the type ruined? But what if we take that grape and the juice and we remove the leaven? There's no leaven in it that makes that juice corrupt. Well, the type says that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And we are to maintain that picture by using the fruit of the vine. Now, let me ask you this, too. Wouldn't it be inconsistent for us to say, you cannot bring alcoholic wine to any of the church suppers, and then turn around and serve it in the Lord's Supper? Would that be inconsistent? Many years ago, when we were first going through the church statement of faith, I was preaching on um, this issue about the elements of the supper, and uh, I told you at that time that there were churches in our fellowship in Kentucky, Baptist churches, that use fermented wine in the Lord's Supper. And when I said that, there were many church members that were aghast at that, to think that, you mean a Baptist would actually do that? Well, yes, there, there are some that do. And we once had a debate on this subject in our church. Uh, my dad was debating a man who believed in using wine in the Lord's Supper, and so we'd invited a lot of churches to come. People heard about it, and... Those who are on both sides of the position came. And this man was trying to defend the use of wine in the Lord's Supper. And uh, he wasn't doing a very good job of it. And so he just got flustered about it with the arguments that were used from Scripture against it. And so after that was over, there were many of those Baptist churches, pastors in those churches that changed. And they said, well, now we see that we ought not to use that in the Lord's Supper. Now, let me just say this, that if we start using wine in the Lord's Supper, then that will be the day that we make church suppers BYOB. And some of you, if I announce that, you might show up three days early just, just to get here on time for it. But remember this, Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. We have to maintain the type. We do it with the bread, and certainly we have to do that with the cup. Now, finally, and, and we're out of time, I need to to make the last observation, and that is the preparation for the Lord's Supper. Now, this, this is the practical application as it pertains to your personal preparation. That's a lot of P's in that statement. 
the practical application as it applies to your personal participation. Now, I mentioned Paul was very concerned about sin in the church. In the fifth chapter, he said, you have got to put this man out of the church because of sin. He said, you can't let him come to the supper. Now, that man was guilty of sexual sin. It was open. It was defiant. The church knew about it, and they hadn't done anything about it. It was a very serious sin. He was living in an incestuous relationship. And so that's a sin that very seriously hurt the reputation of the church, or at least it would have if that church had any semblance of of godliness. But at least it did do this. In, In a city that's filled with heathens, it was a reproach upon the reputation of Christ. So he's involved in a very bad sin. And, but, I, but I have to ask this question. Aren't all sins a problem to Christ? It doesn't matter the, what we think is bad sin. All sins are a problem to Christ. Doesn't any sin affect the symbols that are in the supper? I mean, how do we come to the supper thinking about the sinless body of Christ? We think about the blood of Christ. We think about the idea of leaven and fermentation and corruption and Christ's sinlessness. Doesn't that tell us that there is no place for sin in the Lord, at the Lord's table. Now, you're very familiar with Paul's command about this. You know this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, what he's talking about there is your personal sin. Don't bring it to the supper. Sin has to be confessed. It must be put out of our hearts. We must be prepared to commune with the sinless Christ. So how do we prepare for it? We do it, as Paul says, with self-examination. Let a man examine himself. Now, I would propose two very important questions for self-examination. The first one is, am I right with God. Now, I already assume that you're saved. You can't be right with God unless you're saved. That is a blasphemous, hideous problem, insulting to God, that we would have a person that would eat the supper who isn't saved. I don't think any of us have a problem with that. We recognize it. The lost man does not have a life that is pleasing to God. But sadly, we have to say that neither do many Christians live lives that are pleasing to God. And this is why we have verses in the Bible, like Hebrews 12, verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why does the Lord rebuke and chasten? It's because he's displeased. 1 John 1, 9 encourages us to confess our sins and to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That is a verse for believers. That is not a verse for unbelievers. We must examine ourselves to be sure that there is no sin that ruins fellowship with God. Now, the sins that we're talking about most often are inward sins. They're not like this man in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, sometimes that is the case. Those people are to be dealt with uh, in the disciplinary process. But usually we're talking about sins that are inward. This is not open sin. It's not a sin that the pastor can look at you and say, well, I know that you must be involved in something. Some of you look really guilty, but I can't actually say, you know, you, you are in some kind of a deep sin. I don't know that. I can't examine you. Um, Paul 
wouldn't have been able to examine people like that. I mean, he couldn't see it like he could the open sin of the man there in 1 Corinthians 5. But you know it's there. And not only do you know it's there, someone else knows it's there. That's God. So don't think that you could come to the supper with hidden sins because God knows them. And those are sins that must be confessed in order to be right with him. And so we come to the supper. We do it every time before we take the supper. We have that moment of silent prayer so we can confess our sins. We don't want to bring our sins to the table. Now, the second question that we need to ask is, am I right with my fellow Christians? Now, the primary purpose of the supper is fellowship with Christ. That's number one. The first question takes care of that. The first question is between you and God. But the second uh, purpose of the supper is communion with the fellowship of believers. So first you have God, and second it's the fellowship with believers. And fellowship is broken when church members are at each other. When they gossip, when they hold grudges against one another, when there's bitterness in their hearts, those are the kinds of things that kill the fellowship of the church, and Christ will have none of that in his church. Now, uh, I've told you before about some rules that I like to live by. And I I realize that that the Lord's Supper is not about me, but I want to tell you this in order to help you get some attitude adjustments about things and how that you can come to the Supper with your heart right with other Christians. One of the rules that I live by is that I assume when someone says something bad about me, and they do, I know that they do, But when they do, I assume when a person says something bad about me, I first assume they didn't mean it. I don't know what the cause is, but they didn't mean it. Maybe they did, but I assume that they didn't. And so I overlook many, many things without saying a word. But you should know this, that when I greet you and I shake your hand and I smile at you and I'm friendly with you, I know what you said. And that's because the church has big ears. Did you know that? Big ears. So if you said something and I'm looking you in the eye, I know that you did. People need to learn this about pastors. Um, There's very often more loyalty to me than you might think. And that friend that you thought was tight-lipped and would never say a word, oh, they do. They do. They, if they don't tell me directly, they tell somebody. And it'll come back, I'll know about it, and I'll shake your hand, and I know what you said. I know what you said. But now that you're nervous, calm down. Because I assume you didn't mean it. So we're okay. Another rule that I tried to live by is the rule of apology. Now, I know sometimes that I can get busy about things, uh, thinking about other things, and I get short with people. I I don't like to do that. Sometimes I get short with people, and I may hurt somebody's feelings. If I preach against your sin, it's not my intent to hurt your feelings. Uh, But if it does, I'm sorry that it did, but I'm not going to stop grinding my heel on you until you're done sinning, until you get rid of it. But I don't want to intentionally hurt anybody's feelings. And so some of you know this. I will apologize to you. If I know about it, that I've offended someone, I will apologize uh, for that. I mean, I I tried to live by that because I don't want anything between you and me. Now, you see, a rule for the Lord's Supper is this. There should be nothing between you and me. Get that? There shouldn't be anything between you and the pastor. But there shouldn't be anything between you and any other member of the church. What you need to do is to make it right before you take the supper. 
So first of all, you make it right with God. The second thing that you do is you make it right with your fellow Christians. That's what makes it a Berean supper, not a Corinthian supper. Now, here's the attitude that the Lord wants to see. Galatians 6, 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Colossians 3. Oh, by the way, the law of Christ, does everybody know what that is? What is the law of Christ? Louder? Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is exactly the thing he's talking about. This is the law of Christ. Love God, love your neighbor. Colossians 3. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, let me give you one last comment before I close. When you discover there is a problem, it is up to you to get rid of it. There is no virtue in saying, well, it's time for the Lord's Supper, and I've got this problem with another church member, and I know that it's not right to take the Lord's Supper when you've got a problem with another church member, so I won't take the Lord's Supper. No, it's never the right thing not to take the supper. Never, never, never is that the right thing. There is no virtue, no virtue, and no holiness in refusing to take the supper because you know that you shouldn't. We don't do evil that good may come. You understand? You don't do evil that good may come. You've got to take care of it. The Lord's never going to slap you on the back and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Oh, you're so righteous. You didn't take the Lord's Supper because I said, Don't do it if you got something against somebody. Now, what's the greater thing to do? Go fix it. Get it right. That's what the Lord expects. So you don't, you don't have any virtue in saying, I'm so holy to stay away from the Lord's Supper. No, no. You've got to get things right. That's good for the church. So, that's the conclusion. This is, uh, this is probably the most comprehensive that we've gone into the uh, mechanics of taking the Lord's Supper over these many weeks. But we're Baptist. That's the Baptist acrostic. We're Baptist. We are determined that we're going to get it right. Because that's what the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ do. If it's in the Bible, we believe it, and we want to get it right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's good to get into it, to study it find out what you'd have us to do. Such a blessing to us to know that uh, when we obey your word, that we're pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our understanding of these things. Now, maybe some folks understand why that we're so careful about what we do uh, with these elements, what, what's in that cup, the kind of bread that we use, who we serve it to, where we serve it. All of these are things that are extremely important in your economy. So, Lord, we thank you for the, the wisdom. We're studying living in wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that you've shown us what we should do about these things. Bless our people. We thank you for each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.